Hello everyone. This is the Inside AI podcast, a show for researchers in life sciences that aims to answer real-life questions about microscopy, image analysis and assistive AI practices. I am Benjamin, a life sciences professional and the lead content creator at KML Vision. I bring several years of experience in biomedical sciences and biotechnology with a specialization in histology and image analysis. My co-host is Elisa, and together we will guide you through the world of AI in life sciences. Hi, everyone. I'm a content writer at KML Vision and a future doctor. With my experiences in scientific assistance, lecturing, and academic coaching, I'm beyond excited to join this conversation and ask all the burning questions on your behalf. In this series, we will engage in thought-provoking conversations with scientists and researchers, giving you insights into their experiences. Let's kickstart this episode and unlock the secrets that lie within. Hello, everybody. Hello, Johannes. It's a pleasure to have you here and thank you for taking the time for this interview. I want to start right off with some information about you. So what is your role at the Institute of Vascular Biology and Thrombosis Research and what are your main research interests? So hello everybody from my side. I'm actually the head of the Institute of Vascular Biology and Thrombosis Research here at the Medical University of Vienna. I'm not a medical doctor. I have a biotechnology training uh, as a background and then specialized on biomedical research. And my main research interests since many years are inflammation in all different versions, so to say. I was studying inflammation on the molecular level for many years, which molecules are involved in inflammation processes. And the last few years, I'm very much focusing on how inflammation contributes to different diseases such as cancer or thrombosis, and in particular cardiovascular diseases. I was investigating, for example, atherosclerosis quite a lot because that is a chronic inflammatory state of arteries, which contributes to many life-threatening diseases such as myocardial infarction or stroke. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you. That sounds very interesting. So um, what actually drives you and motivates you to continue research in this area? Yeah, I think an, an important point is that in, in the last decades, medicine was very successful in extending our lifespan. So we live much longer than former generations. But now it's getting more and more important to lengthen the healthy lifespan, so to say. And chronic inflammation is a state that increases with age and it is uh, predisposing the human organism to diseases such as cancer or cardiovascular diseases, as I had mentioned before. Since cancer and cardiovascular diseases make up about 50% of the worldwide mortalities, it is really important to understand the underlying chronic inflammatory processes. And what drives me is that I want to make a step further from the traditional medical approach, which is rather to wait until the disease is diagnosed and then you try to treat it. And this treatment is often according to guidelines which have been developed for standard groups of patients. I want to get beyond that because it's more and more recognized now that personalized medicine has to be used to treat patients more individually. My personal vision is that it is important not only to perform personalized medicine, but to perform personalized prevention, meaning that you do not wait until the disease comes up, but you try to diagnose with precision diagnostics 
pre-morbidity states, so the states before real disease comes up. And then you try to give your personalized advice how the individual patient could stay healthy so that not any disease is coming up then in the future. In a nutshell, personalized precision health care is, is my vision for the future, so to say. One of your ongoing projects is about multifactorial fluorescence microscopy and AI-assisted analysis of blood smears. We would be interested in what specific techniques or methodologies you use in this project. So mostly we use microscopy. So at first state, uh, bright field microscopy, that is the traditional approach that uh, blood smears are analyzed on transmission-like microscope in combination with certain stainings. And then you try to depict the different leukocyte subtypes. And we want to extend that to fluorescence microscopy because that will give us an enormous additional potential to look very specifically for certain markers of cells or diseases. We try to complement that with techniques and methods such as flow cytometry, where you do not get an image of the cells, but you get a very good quantitative assessment of leukocytes, for example, so of white blood cells. Oh, okay. So what types of blood samples will be analyzed? Where do we get them from? So in, in our research project, in collaboration with a company, we first start out with blood from healthy volunteers. So that's my own blood and that of my colleagues and the team members. So you can say that we give our blood for science. But we also plan to investigate the blood of people with chronic inflammatory diseases, get uh, blood from patients. And we also have mouse models, so animal models of chronic inflammatory states of blood vessels. And we would also like to analyze the blood of these mice. So you can do that with a rather simple blood sampling from mice. So they, they do not suffer from that. And then you can analyze their blood samples. So, of course, we follow all the ethical guidelines. Since quality is also a big topic in research, uh, how do you plan to ensure the quality and also the consistency of these blood samples used in the project? So basically, we have standardized protocols for the blood sampling and for the staining of the blood samples. And we also analyze the blood of the same person several times so that we can see whether we get consistent, robust data. Then, of course, there are certain quality controls that we can look at. So we, we check whether the sample K on the microscope before we do more detailed analysis with it. Mm -hmm. The analysis is, is going to be AI-assisted. So how does our software ICOSA AI support your study? The ICOSA platform is very valuable and helpful for us because it allows us automatizing uh, the detection of blood cells. So we started out with training data sets where we trained the system to recognize the different subtypes of leukocytes, monocytes, lymphocytes, neutrophils, eosinophils, and so on. That is something that normally a pathologist would have to do manually, or you use flow cytometry methods, but then you do not get the morphology information, the shape information. The ECOSA AI helps us to do that in an automated manner and much faster than what a human could do. By that, we can quantify the state of the cells. We can get information about the health state of the patient and so on. We assume that acute and chronic inflammation also will uh, create structural changes of the white blood cells, which would not be seen in flow cytometry, for example. And that can then be detected with the help of artificial intelligence and image analysis.
All right. I would like to go a bit more into detail now and talk about the role of blood and inflammation. So can you maybe explain the role of leukocytes and the inflammatory process and how are they transported to the site of inflammation? So you can see leukocytes as the policemen or the army of the organism. So there are different types of leukocytes that have different defense tasks, so to say. So they have to defend not only against invading pathogens, but also uh, against foreign material, which is entering the body in some way and which is considered dangerous. But the point is that uh, in, in the blood circulation, they are patrolling basically, and they sometimes do not know where they are needed. So if you, for example, hurt yourself, you cut yourself and then uh, bacteria enter the wound, then the leukocytes, the white blood cells of the organism have to know where is the wound and where do we have to go into the tissue and fight against the pathogens that come in. And this is where endothelial cells come into play. Uh, endothelial cells are those cells that line the blood vessels on the inside facing the blood circulation. And endothelial cells can be activated by these inflammatory triggers. So usually that requires some local immune cells that release molecules that give a signal to the endothelial cells. And then the endothelial cells express docking sites for the leukocytes, uh, so-called adhesion molecules. And by that, the leukocytes are fished out of the blood circulation. So first they roll along the blood vessel and then they attach firmly. And then they can migrate, they can literally squeeze through the endothelial layer into the tissue where the bacteria are or where the foreign material, the invading pathogens are. And then they can execute all their defense mechanisms to uh, get rid of this danger signal, so to say, or of this, uh, of this dangerous state. So that, that is basically how they are then transported to the site of the inflammation. They, they do that by actively crawling towards injury or towards the site of inflammation. I see. Is there a specific subpopulation of white blood cells you want to monitor or are you interested in like in the whole population? We're interested in the whole population because the different uh, leukocyte subtypes have different functions and they also talk with each other and they help each other in the defense mechanism. And in the blood circulation, we find them different percentages of this subtype. So the predominant subtype are neutrophil granulocytes. So they are more kind of the first defense line, so to say. They can release their granules and by that kill the bacteria, but they are not as good as other cells like the monocytes in reporting what type of attack that was and which bacteria that uh, have to be fought by the organisms. For that, you need monocytes or macrophages, which phagocytose part of this foreign material, then they degrade it into small pieces, and they can actually present these small pieces on their surface. These cells, they can then migrate via lymph vessels into the lymph nodes, where they then present these pieces of bacteria or pathogens to other cells of the so-called adaptive immunity, and these are mostly T-cells and B-cells, so-called lymphocytes, that can then very specifically react to certain pieces of these pathogens. So from this first-line unspecific immune defense, you get to a very specific immune defense 
targeting only certain bacteria or certain surface structures, for example, also of viruses and so on. So the same principles also hold true for, for viral infections. Mm -hmm. You are, uh, already mentioned some very important points, which uh, lead me to my next question. There is this hypothesis about the blood carrying an information-rich signature. So what is this about and why is it not yet routinely used for precision diagnostics? Signature of specific inflammatory processes comes from different sides, so to say. On one hand, there is an invasion by pathogens that leukocytes release certain signaling molecules. We also signal to the, the bone marrow that they have to release more leukocytes. So something that we see very early in infections is that young neutrophils are released from the bone marrow so that more policemen or army Uh, more soldiers, so to say, sent to the site of inflammation or attack so that they can defend against the invaders. And simultaneously, these molecules that are released activate the leukocytes and other cells. And these activation states usually not routinely tested in blood spheres, in blood tests. People are just looking, what is the percentage of the different subtypes of white blood cells? but they are not looking at the specific activation states, so which molecules do they express on the surface. Uh, there are subtypes of subtypes, uh, for example, the lymphocytes then split up in T cells and B cells. And then in a routine analysis, T and B cells are not uh, distinguished. So they are just summarized under the term lymphocyte, but they have different roles. And then even the T cells can be subcategorized into Th1 cells, Th2 cells, cytotoxic T cells, and they all have different roles. And in the routine analysis, like what you get at the routine health check that can, you can do at a, a yearly basis, for example, all these different states are not analyzed because it's actually not possible to do that with the, the traditional bright field microscopy. How do you think might a better understanding of the role of blood contribute to the development of new treatments for inflammatory conditions? So I think that it is very important to uh, discriminate chronic and acute inflammation because acute inflammation is the physiological response of the organism that is of transient nature and that goes then back to a kind of quiescent state. So that is just normal. But the problem comes with chronic inflammation and there are, there are different theories On that, it's believed that, for example, repetitive infections over the lifespan finally lead to an increase of this general inflammatory state. So from a normal quiescent situation, you get more and more into a chronic inflammatory state. And understanding the role of blood inflammation is important to understand this shift from the normal physiologically acute inflammation towards the chronic inflammation which is then causing the problems with cardiovascular diseases, thrombotic events, increased tendency to, to form blood clots, and so on and so on. So we would like to understand that better. And the problem, I would say, is that the markers that are currently used to depict inflammation, which is, for example, a blood marker called C-reactive protein, which is routinely checked. And if cannot tell you whether it's an acute phase or a, uh, or a chronic phase of inflammation, because if that marker is elevated, it could be the sign of a chronic inflammation, which is kind of slowly boiling, as we say in, in the scientific community, 
or it could also be the declining phase of an acute inflammation. So for a more precise analysis of leukocytes from standard blood smears could then probably also identify the specific inflammatory states and distinguish between chronic and acute inflammation. So what we know now is that the project is about blood inflammation. What is your experimental design? So do you use any specific mouse models to do your research? When we set up the project, uh, we said first, okay, it's important to uh, contribute a better understanding to what is going on in humans. But in humans, we have a little bit the problem that there is a, a high variability from one person to the next person due to the different genetic backgrounds, the different health states of the people and so on. So sometimes with humans, it's difficult to see the pattern in the noise to cope with that issue. It is very good in a complementary manner to build up mouse models because then you have all the time the same genetic background of the mouse strain that you're investigating. And you just change one element, like one certain gene. That means you have a stable background. And then you're looking at what is happening if I turn that specific gene on or off. And we have a mouse model where we can induce chronic inflammation specifically in arterial endothelial cells uh, by genetic means. And that has a big advantage because we are not just injecting, for example, an inflammatory molecule like lipopolysaccharide or something like that. But we are turning on inflammation very specifically only in the endothelial cells, only of arteries. Uh, and that is something that we did already successfully to study atherosclerosis. But we have a second mouse model where we can do this genetic trick in all uh, the endothelial cells, so also in the veins. And we think that this is very interesting because recruitment of white blood cells to sites of inflammation is actually from veins and not from arteries. So in the case of arteries, it's important for atherosclerosis. But in case of veins, it is important of, for recruitment of leukocytes to sites of injury or inflammation. Right? We have basically mass models for both situations. That's really impressive. So now we have some information about the role of blood and the techniques that are going to be used and would now like to dig a bit deeper into blood cell analysis, as we have shortly mentioned already. Can you describe the standard method used for white blood cell differentiation? So the standard methods are different blood counters that can differentiate between leukocyte subtypes. And that is usually then also done complementary by so-called flow cytometry. So in flow cytometry, you have a cell suspension that is focused so that one cell after the other is flowing through a measurement region where a laser is shining onto the cell. And then you can record the reflection of the light in different angles. By that, you get information on the size of the cell and the granularity. And in addition, you can label a cell with antibody that are uh, linked to a fluorescent marker. And by that, you can then discriminate different subtypes of cells. So that these, these are the standard methods. Apart from the kind of routine blood smear microscopy that is done, the blood smear microscopy with bright field microscopy is usually done when there is something strange in the cell count of low cytometry analysis then the pathologist would actually like to see the cells, also the morphology of the cells, and then he can say whether that is maybe a state of leukemia. So these are 
I would say, the standard methods to discriminate different uh, and analyze different white blood cells. Mm -hmm. And what advantages or limitations come with it? So the flow cytometry compared to blood smear method. Flow cytometry is actually a quite sophisticated technique with rather expensive equipment. It is not available in standard diagnostic labs. So standard diagnostic labs have rather the, the cell counters or they just do this bright field microscopy, the simple one. So the limitation of flow cytometry is that it's rather complicated. It needs special training. And you just get quantitative information of the cells, like the percentages and also the expression of certain activation markers, for example, but you do not see the cell shape. So that is a major limitation of flow cytometry. The advantage is that you can analyze thousands of cells within a second. You can stain with antibodies, as I had mentioned before, and with that you can actually reach a high precision and a very good quantification. Since we've covered quantification of individual cells populations now, um, can you explain the difference between the quantification of like individual cell populations and capturing the different activation states of immune cells, for instance? So in routine health checks, there is just this kind of rather raw quantification of leukocyte subpopulations with respect to their percentages. That is done based on their size and the content of uh, the granules. So with that, you can discriminate between neutrophils, lymphocytes, monocytes. But beyond that, you cannot make any, any clear statements. If you capture specific activation states by means of antibodies that are binding to specific activation markers on the cell surface, you can then get a much uh, more precise assessment of what the different cells are really doing at that state. Are they activated? In which direction are they activated? Because we have not only one activation state, but we have different activation states that need to be discriminated to then really assess what is the current function of the cell, what is it doing. What I forgot to mention is that for this capture of specific activation states, you need to Uh, use something where you can measure several parameters in parallel and fluorescence measurements are ideally suited for that because you can then make use of the different colors of a fluorophore. You can use different types of light to create or generate the fluorescence and then you can look at the different colors in a quantitative manner and uh, achieve a multifactorial quantification. If I might jump in here with a question, um, Johannes, If I remember right, you also mentioned that sometimes white blood cells are covered with those platelets in, in specific inflammatory episodes. Is this measurable with flow cytometry or do you think that the blood smear analysis is here like the better option? Uh, that is a very good point, I think. That is something that has been recognized in more detail just recently, that the so-called platelet leukocyte aggregates. So platelets can bind to monocytes, lymphocytes, neutrophils, and then they interact with these cells, not only physically, but they also, so to say, talk with these cells. So it's known that platelets can, for example, activate neutrophils so that they perform a very specific function. Uh, they can expel their DNA uh, in a process that is called mitosis. So they expel nets. This is an abbreviation for neutrophil extracellular traps with which they can capture bacteria, for example. Vice versa, neutrophils can also activate platelets. 
And when platelets are activated, they contribute to blood clot formation. So there is really a strong interconnection between immune defense mechanisms and blood clotting, thrombotic processes. This kind of sophisticated crosstalk between these two different biological processes is still not completely understood in, in all the details that would be necessary. And these platelet glucoside aggregates, they can be analyzed much better with by means of microscopy because then you really see a leukocyte decorated with platelets. You can also assess how many platelets are sitting on a leukocyte. What is the activation state of the platelets? What is the activation state of the leukocyte and so on? In flow cytometry, with some tricks, you can, looking for so-called duplicates or triplicates, you can also detect platelet leukocyte aggregates, but you do not have the detailed information that you would have with microscopy. I've already mentioned in the beginning, AI plays an important role in the analysis. So how will this multifluorescent staining and artificial intelligence be used to take this methodology to the next level? So we, we believe that... Uh, kind of setting up this presence technology for blood smears will raise the whole analysis to a completely new level because you can then analyze the presence in different channels, so many different parameters in parallel. Uh, that is not possible with these standard techniques. It will be necessary to use artificial intelligence to train in the system so that you don't have to do it on an individual basis where you would need hours and, I don't know, maybe weeks to analyze all the data that is there. So you need a computer that can do that in an automated manner. So you need to train the computer so that it can use these machine learning approaches and these different approaches of AI so that the computer can do what a human can do, but with much higher speed and precision, basically. The computer has the quantitative information, not only on, for example, the level of expression of a certain marker, but also on the dimensions. So as humans, when we look at something, we, we can give a qualitative assessment, but we cannot say the diameter of the nucleus is five micrometers or 6.5 micrometers. We can just say the nucleus looks a little bit bigger than the other nucleus. And this is where a machine can be much better than a human. It's important to keep in mind that it's not that the machines are replacing humans or pathologists in this concrete application, but it's that the machines can help us to achieve our tasks much faster and with higher precision than what we do alone as humans. Yes, and obviously human error and human bias can be reduced as well. And this research project, how do you see it impacting the field of medical diagnostics in the future? So, of course, for the phase in which we are right now, we have a, a research application of all these different new techniques and technologies. There's a long way to go to bring something from a research application to a real medical application because it has to be approved by different authorities and so on as a medical product. But I think that we can try to make a contribution to that development of the field by providing an information how that can be achieved and what are the limitations, what are the strengths, where do we have to fine-tune the system that we really get robust results and so on. I think that in general, this research can have a huge impact on the field of medical diagnostics in the future, but it will take its time, of course, because there will be certain variabilities, there will be certain errors that we hope to 
uh, eliminate during the, the course of the project. But my, my vision is that in the future, at some point, every general practitioner could have such a system in his ordination and could actually, when he's doing a blood routine test, that he's running an AI uh, system over that sample and maybe the images are acquired automatically. And then the computer tells him, you should have more detailed look at this or that patient because this or that patient shows a specific uh, situation and the machine is not replacing the doctor, but the machine is helping the doctor to find out, okay, here you should have a closer look. I think that one of the important aims of our project is to get all this information with simple microscopes, with simple fluorescence microscopes, which can be afforded by general routine diagnostic labs or by a normal medical doctor who is a general practitioner. And then they can then apply these techniques and technologies uh, without the need to get a very special training, without the need to purchase an instrument like a flow cytometer, which costs 100,000 euros or something like that. That the entry level for this type of technique and, and technology, the entry level for precision diagnostics is as low as possible to provide really precision health care. Mm-hmm. Brings me back to what you mentioned right at the beginning about looking at patients individually and also you mentioned uh, to differentiate between acute and chronic inflammation states, for instance, and then provide a specific and targeted therapy that this patient needs. Um, so you mentioned the time factor as well. Can you give us like an estimate how long will it take to have that in the HAP practice, for instance? Is it in a human lifetime? Yeah, of course, uh, this is always difficult to answer because we do not know how fast the development will be. My personal impression is that we have in this area a very, very fast uh, development right now. There are many companies and research institutes going into that direction. And as we have seen from ChatGPT and AI in language models, that was not that much discussed only in specialist communities. And then suddenly it became a super hype and everybody is talking about that. That's why I, I would not really dare to give an estimate how fast it will get into practice, so to say. But certainly not within the lifetime, but rather within the time of five to ten years. I expect that it will be first applied in the research field, in the academic field. And when it proves to be valuable there then it will slowly move into the healthcare system, first in hospitals or in university clinics that have a, an affinity towards newer research techniques. And just then it will kind of slowly shift over to smaller labs and so on. I expect that this will be a rather fast process. Well, I'm hoping to witness some of it. <laughs> I'm sure you will. So. <laughs> yeah, very interesting to say the least. Um, yeah, that brings me to our final question. Could you briefly tell us what the future of multifactorial fluorescence microscopy and AI-assisted analysis of blood smears will look like? And especially focus on what you would like others and our listeners to take away from your research. So I, I think that this multifactorial fluorescence microscopy and AI 
will allow an easy assessment of health states as, for instance, the diagnosis of chronic inflammatory states before real diseases come up and develop so that it is possible to counteract early enough. And my takeaway message is uh, that it is very important for everybody actually to be aware that it is crucial to prevent the onset of disease, not to wait until you are sick and then you try to get a good treatment, but uh, that you need precision diagnosis of your own organism, so to say, early enough. And if necessary, you have to change your lifestyle or you take early actions so that you extend the healthy lifespan so that you can, with precision diagnostics and precision health care, you can stay healthy as long as possible and you do not develop diseases that you would otherwise develop. So basically living a longer life with also more healthier years. Thanks again for taking your time and for talking to us. Thanks a lot for your interest in, in our project and it was a very nice possibility to talk about it a little bit. I will definitely follow up on it at a later point. Thank you, Johannes. From my side, it was a pleasure to have you here. We look forward to the second interview and talk about your ongoing research and how you proceeded. Thank you very much. All the best. Thank you everyone for listening. Let us know if you like our work by following KML Vision on LinkedIn, signing up for our bi-weekly Inside AI in Life Sciences newsletter, or subscribing to our podcast. Find more information in the description. Bye.